0: Our sermon passage this morning is Exodus 4 18 through 31. Moses went back to Jethro, his father in law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place, on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped.
1: Let's pray. Definitely Father, Lord, we just want to first and foremost thank you so much for being a present God. I want to thank you for the fact that you're a God that desires to be known, that you desire for us to know you and know you well, and that you are a God that reveals yourself through your word so that we can know you, so that we can understand you. Lord, I just ask that your spirit would be with us today, and Lord, that as we dig into your word... As we begin to study the the text that you've given us, Lord, I just pray that you would help us understand what you're communicating, that you would help us understand you, and Lord, that we would understand grace and mercy and sovereignty and justice. We would understand all of these things that, that are in this text well because of this, Lord. Lord, we love you and praise you. Amen. Well, hello, everyone. How are we doing? I'm assuming you're all smiling. My name is LJ. I am one of the pastors here at Redeemer Church. Um, I am absolutely honored to have the opportunity to speak with you guys today. This is actually the second time that I have uh, been given the privilege of being able to teach uh, to the entire congregation. Uh, About four weeks ago, Jamie asked me if I would be willing to fill in on a Sunday while he was on vacation. And um, considering Jamie's style of preaching, there's really nowhere to know where he's going to be in four weeks. Um, we could have been in one chapter for the entirety of that time, uh, and now we have, we have gotten here, and it is my turn to preach, and uh, the text before us is what I get to teach on. And I'm, I'm not going to lie, the first time that I read it, um, I read it thinking, oh, this is maybe my least, uh, it, the least excited I've ever been about preaching. <laughs> Um, So I am gonna go ahead and acknowledge the text that we're preaching is one of the more complicated texts in Scripture that I've ever handled. Uh, And I cannot promise you that that by the end of this, you're gonna understand everything that this text says. Uh, There are gonna be certain questions that may come up. You may leave with greater questions than you came in with. And and I apologize in advance, and I trust that the Spirit will work those out in you. Uh, One thing that I can promise you is this, uh, before I ever accept an invitation to preach from Jamie again, I'm going to make sure I know exactly what the text is. Uh, So that being said, let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, We are in Exodus 4, uh, verses 18 through 31. And and before we start going through each section of this text, I want to kind of go back and do a quick reminder of the style, the type of text that we're actually dealing with. So Exodus is written as a historical narrative. Now, Exodus actually fits into many types of genres, but a historical narrative is kind of the broader theme. All right, and, and I want to address two aspects of this. One, Exodus is a historical text, and it's important for us to remember that it is a historical text. When we read the stories of Exodus, we are reading about real people in real places that are, that are participating in real events, And understanding Exodus as a history is significant simply because of the fact that history, history shapes who we are. History shaped how the people of God ended up where the people of God are today. And it's important for us to realize that when we study Exodus, we are not simply studying these old folklores of, of days gone by. We're studying a text that has actually put the people of God where the people of God are today. I don't, I don't think I really understood this well, but this past week I had a great example of this. We were uh, visiting with the Bettertons in their home, and while we were visiting with the Bettertons, we started talking about history, and Duffy went and got this timeline, and this timeline was uh, was basically a timeline from creation all the way until our present period, and she began to unfold this timeline, and And it unfolded once and then unfolded twice and then three or four times and then refolded because we unfolded it incorrectly. And then we had to, And by the end of it, this timeline went from one end of her house all the way to the other end of her house. And it was just absolutely astonishing to look at because what you're realizing is, is that you're looking at history and realizing that these are not just stories that are informing us about people and places. But these are, these are stories that are actually part of the story we're currently in. And it's, it's important to realize that Exodus is a part of our story. All right, now, the other thing that's important about understanding Exodus' history is the reminder that when we study the people of God in, in Exodus, we're studying real people that are giving us real examples of what it was like to follow the Lord. Again, this is not folklore. This is not myth or legend. We get a lot of interactions between Moses and God that gives us a lot of insight into our own humanity. Now, it's a historical narrative because it is not simply history for the sake of history. All right? It's not just a book that goes through and tells us so-and-so did such-and-such on this time and in this place. Okay, It's narrative because it is a story, and it's a story that has been crafted, These real historical people in in places, these events are being told to us in such a way to teach us something about God. And that's such an important thing for us to understand that when we come to the book of Exodus, we're not just simply trying to learn what took place in Exodus. When we come to the the book of Exodus, we're, we're trying to learn something that's true about God himself. Now, in forming narratives, there are certain literary devices that are used to help us understand these things. And in the text that we're in today, one of the devices that's used is the device of transition. <laughs> All right, we're in a story right now to where we're currently in this moment between two epic events. All right, and in this transition text that we're dealing with is giving us insight into the person of Moses and the person of God that bridges these two epic events. Well, what are these epic events? Well, for the past two weeks, we've studied Moses and the burning bush. This unbelievable encounter in which Moses is standing in front of this bush that is burning, that is not consumed, and the God of the universe is speaking to him, is commissioning him, is calling him for a task of redemption, of redeeming his people. It is one of the most significant texts in all of Scripture is this encounter between Moses and God. And and that is the event that we just stepped out of. And next week, if I actually finish this passage, next week, Jamie will be preaching on Moses and Aaron confronting Pharaoh. And, and look at the way this narrative is building. Last week, we studied Moses' encounter with God. Next week, we are studying Moses' and Aaron's encounter with a man who thinks he's God. And now what we get in this week is we get that transition text that gets us from one epic event to the other. Now, the nature of transitions in themselves is that they're easily forgotten. <laughs> they're easy to look over Uh, If I were to ask any of you guys to tell me the story of Moses, every one of you guys would remember the burning bush. All of you would remember the encounter with Pharaoh. Uh, Very few people would would remember to throw this Zipporah account in. (laughs) Okay, very few people would remember to to throw in this transitional first steps. But I think that there are significant things that we can pull out of this text. And I think that we do want to remind ourselves that even transitions are inspired. Even transitions are communicating something from God. All right, so I'm gonna go ahead and give you my entire sermon in one slide. Um, That way, if I don't finish, you've got it. All right, so uh, the, the main points that I wanna deal with today as we're studying through this text is we're gonna talk about two main themes that this narrative is communicating. One is the theme of obedience from Moses, and the other is the theme of the faithfulness of God. All right, and this is so so crucial because I do think that the historical nature of this text gives us some really impressive insight into what it looks like for a man to be obedient. So here's the things that we're gonna deal with. Number one, obedience requires trusting God in all aspects of our life. Number two, obedience requires trusting God with our fears. Ben preached on this last week and we're not gonna rehash the entire sermon, but we're gonna talk about it a little bit more Uh, Number three, obedience in one area does not permit disobedience in another. Number four, obedience assumes we are trusting God with the results of our actions. All right, so let's go ahead and dig in. Point one, uh, obedience requires trusting God in all aspects of our lives. If you'll uh, follow with me in the text in chapter 4, verses 18 through 20, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see where they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife, his sons, and he had them ride on a donkey and he went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. All right, so this was a really interesting thing to me. This burning bush account was so dramatic, okay? Moses is standing from front of the burning bush. Moses has just been given this task of going back and confronting, uh, confronting Pharaoh. Over and over again, Moses is demonstrating his inability, his weakness, his fear, and God is just letting him have it, just letting him have it. Where you're weak, I'll be strong. Don't be afraid, I'm the one that's going to confront you submit to my sovereignty. Do not respond out of fear. God is just, I mean, just prepping Moses. He's establishing Moses. If you like movies, and I love movies, this is like your training, uh, is your training montage. I watched Karate Kid this past week with my with my kids. I love it. Like, this is those scenes where like wax on, wax off, and all of a sudden you realize like, oh, he's teaching him karate. Like, what's going on? And then you get all of these scenes where, you know, painting actually is, is defending, and he's learning how to punch. He's learning how to kick, and he learns the, the crane kick, which apparently is undefendable. Like it's just amazing. You have this epic buildup of the person of Danielson. And then after this moment, you're like, all right, let's get him to Cobra Kai. Let's get him fighting. You're just so excited about this moment that sometimes you realize that sometimes those big moments don't simply transition from one epic moment to another. When Moses has this confrontation with God in which God is commissioning him and sending him, there becomes a moment where it dawns on Moses that if I obey, my obedience has ramifications for my father-in-law. My obedience has ramifications for my son and my wife. This requires an unbelievable amount of faith to sit down and not simply say, Lord, I trust you with my life, but to say, Lord, I trust you with my life and I trust you with the life of my family and I'm going to confront the king of the greatest empire in the world at this point. I'm going to confront a man that thinks he's God and I'm going to ask him to let my people go and I realize that this could very easily result in my death and I'm trusting that if I obey you in doing this, that you're gonna take care of me and my family. And my wife and I, we, get, we got to serve in the Middle East for four years, and, uh, and I absolutely loved it. It was such a great time. One of the most difficult things about going to the Middle East was actually the process of going to the Middle East. Living there was a lot easier than going there because uh, there's a lot of fear that builds up as, as you begin to respond to in, in obedience in a situation like this. And there's fears of what's going on in the culture and, and what's going on in the people. And will they be acceptance? Will they be violent? Will they love us? But honestly, in, in responding to all these things, Amy and I had spent a lot of time praying. And it became abundantly clear that the Lord was calling us to do this. And it be, we became so emboldened. We were like, we're ready to do this. We had counted the cost. But one thing that I didn't take into consideration is that the most difficult thing that I was going to have to do in responding to obedience was to go have a conversation with my father-in-law and explain, hey, I'm taking your daughter and I'm taking your grandkids and we're gone. And We're following in obedience. Moses even responds in such a way that he doesn't even explain what he's doing. <laughs> Moses kind of cops out. God just gave him this amazing story. Like, I'm, you're gonna be my voice. You're gonna go speak on my behalf. And Moses goes to his father-in-law It's like, eh, i just like to go see some relatives. Family reunion in Egypt, just checking out. And here's the thing that we get, off the, we get from this text right off the bat, is that in calling Moses to obedience, God had also taken care of the other aspects of his life. Jethro had every reason to say, Moses, you're not permitted. Moses, you can't take my family. Moses, you can't leave. In that culture, Moses would have been obliged to stay. But what we see instead is God had already prepared the heart of of Jethro, and Jethro, rather than withholding Moses, blesses him and sends him on his way. So right off the bat, what we see is obedience requires trusting God in all aspects of our lives, and that's sometimes more difficult than we would like to imagine. The second point is this, obedience... Requires trusting God with our fears. Now, Ben addressed this very well last week, and I don't wanna rehash it, but I do wanna say is this. In the burning bush scene, Moses brings up a lot of issues that he, he's struggling with, and God can and deals with them. Each issue that Moses brings forward, God has an answer and a solution to those issues until finally we get to the point to where Moses is broken down. He is down to the point to where all that is left is for obedience. And in that first verse that we read, right after the burning bush scene, Moses takes that step in obedience. He goes to his father-in-law and he asks for permission and he loads up his family and he begins to take them to Egypt But one thing that we see in this text that I think is important to remember is following obedience doesn't mean that fear isn't going to creep back in from time to time. Even when you get over that that initial fear of, Lord, can I do this, can I not do this, sometimes that fear creeps back in in the process. If you read with me in the text, verses 19 down to 23, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, In Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons. and He led them on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. So immediately we had this fear of what if somebody remembers what I've done? What if somebody remembers the actions? What if somebody remembers that that I've already put to death One one of Pharaoh's men? So God begins to address that fear in the moment. Moses, do not be afraid. The men that sought your death, they're no longer here. So go back. But then as he's making that trip, he's humbly sitting there with nothing but a shepherd's rod, a wife, his kids, and a donkey, and he's going back and realizing, I'm going to confront the most powerful man in the world. And God recognizes the fear that Moses has, and he addresses them, and he says, Again, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you say to the Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Moses is terrified as to what he's going to say, the most powerful powerful man in the world at that time, and God says, these are the words. Now, let's dig into these words because they're very significant. Who was Pharaoh? Well, Pharaoh was the king of Egypt. He was the most powerful man in all the land. Not only was he the king of Egypt, but for the Egyptians, he was the representation of God on earth. He was the sun god of Re, meaning he saw himself as God and the son of the gods, and he had declared over all the land, these people shall be my slaves. And listen to what God's response is. God sends Moses back to Pharaoh and says, You think that you are the son of God, but let me make something very clear to you the sons of gods are the ones that you think are slaves. You think that you're powerful, but let me make something clear to you. In all of your power, in all of your might, in all of your strength, you don't even have the ability to control your own heart. For I, the Lord, your God, will harden your heart so that you do not let my people go. Now, that's a very difficult passage. And thankfully, that that theme of hardening the heart of Pharaoh is going to come up all throughout the text, and Jamie is going to deal with it in a lot more detail. And and we're going to see examples throughout Scripture in which Pharaoh hardens his own heart towards God, and then other examples in which God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But I think it's very important that when we deal with this text, we have to address a couple of things one, God is not hardening a man's heart that did not want his heart hardened already. It's not as if Pharaoh was saying, oh, I love God and I would love to let his people serve you. Pharaoh was was aggressively attacking the children of God and was aggressively attacking the nature of God himself. But this is the other thing that we're dealing with in this text with Pharaoh in the encounter with God and Pharaoh We are of a man that is positioning himself as God against the one true God. And it's so important for us to realize that in that moment that God is demonstrating that this man who claims to be God has no authority, has no power, cannot even control control his own heart. In Proverbs 21, it says this, that the hearts of kings are like streams of water, that God moves them and directs them as he wills, and he demonstrates this clearly With Pharaoh in this moment is so important for us. It's so important for us to realize that there is no God above God, that there is no other being out there that can claim the authority of God. It's so important that when he finally leads Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness and to the mountain, and he has Moses on the mountain, he stands before Moses, and in giving the law, the very first thing that he says is, I am the Lord your God who saved you out of Egypt. You shall have no other God before me. This is not God that is sitting up there that is just starving for attention. Please worship me and me alone. This is a God that is declaring there is no other God. There is no other God. And the one that used to claim to be God over you, I control his heart like a stream of water. I am the Lord your God. Worship me and worship me alone. So when God goes before Moses and he calls him and that fear begins to creep in, and Moses is saying, What do I have to say? God is just reminding him, You have nothing to say. I have it. I've got it. The next text is this Obedience requires. There he goes. Obedience, one area does not prevent di- disobedience in another. Verse 24 says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone, and it was then uh, that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now let's go ahead and acknowledge. I have no idea what this means. <laughs> okay, and if you do know, Uh, I would love to invite you to come up and teach this section. Uh, I mean, I've read probably a dozen commentaries, and all of the commentaries start off with this statement, nobody is absolutely certain what's going on in this. It's a confusing text, and there's a reason why it's confusing. Uh, One is because they use a lot of pronouns, but they never explain who the pronouns are directed towards. So if you read it, it's kind of interesting, and, in, uh, and at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Well, we don't know which him we're talking about. It could be Moses. It could be one of Moses' sons. Uh, there are some commentaries that actually argue that it may have been Pharaoh. I'm not going to really make an argument for any of them. Um But then it goes on and says, well, whatever took place, this is what we do know, is that Moses is on his journey, he's on the road, and whatever has taken place has brought that transition to Egypt to a halt. Moses was on the way, but whatever is happening, he cannot proceed until this issue is resolved. And it's a significant issue, so much so that it says, from the perspective of Moses... It felt like the Lord was seeking his death, whoever the he is. And here's the other weird thing is that the the focus of the story shifts. So far, we've been talking about Moses and God, but now all of a sudden, the focus of the story is Zipporah. Whatever is happening, Moses doesn't seem to know how to respond to it, but Zipporah does. So Zipporah pulls out a flint knife, and she circumcises her son. And then she takes the foreskin and touches it to the feet. And in that moment, the Lord relents. And she declares, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So here's the thing. I strongly encourage you guys to go find some commentaries and study this. Because it's a complex text. It's a really difficult thing to understand exactly what's happening in this. It's one of those texts that whenever I read it, I'm like, Lord, I don't know why you would put this in here. It seems to make it worse. It seems to make the situation worse. But here is what we do know. The resolution to this problem was circumcision. All right? And in all of the unclarity, let's focus on what was clear. Whatever was clear was somebody in that that party had not been circumcised properly. And before they could move forward, there had to be obedience in that circumcision. Well, why is that significant? Well, circumcision was the sign of the covenant. Well, the covenant between whom? Between God and Abraham. Well, what was that covenant? Well, the covenant was simply this, Abraham, out of you I'll make a great nation, and all of the nations of the world will be blessed. I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you, and I will give you a land a great land and there you will dwell and I will be your God and you will be my people. That is the covenant promise. So when Moses is going, he, we're, we're seeing the story where Moses is taking on the role of, of being God's God's man, God's tool to bring Israel out of slavery so that they can move towards that land. But here's the deal, before Moses could faithfully obey God, Before Pharaoh, Moses had to demonstrate that he faithfully trusted God in in the covenant. Moses had to sit back and say, Lord, before I go stand before Pharaoh, I have to be able to demonstrate that I actually believe that you're going to make a covenant people, that you're going to pull us out of slavery and into this land. And it's so important for us to realize, you would think that given the nature of the task that Moses was given, that maybe God would kind of let him off the hook on some other things. But that's not the case. It's important for us to realize that obedience in one area of our life does not permit or allow disobedience in the other. And then the final point that I wanna make today, well, maybe the almost final point, is obedience assumes we are trusting God with the results. And the truth be told is Moses was going to confront Pharaoh and Moses was not going to get the results that a normal person would have wanted. In an ideal situation, Moses would have gone before Pharaoh and said, hey, God sent me. It'd be great if you let the people go so that we could go worship. And Pharaoh would say, oh, that's a great idea. Go ahead and go. Like that's the way that I would personally have wanted that situation to go. But instead God says, Moses, go confront Pharaoh, tell him that he, you want the people to be free to go worship their God, but understand this, it's gonna get ugly. <laughs> it's gonna get really nasty and he's not gonna let him go. So right off the bat, what we're beginning to realize is Moses, you're going to have to obey, but you have to trust that the results are left in God's hands. So this last of the passage I love so much it says, then the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and he met him at the mountain of God and he kissed him and Moses told Aaron all the words that the Lord had sent him to speak and all of the signs that he had commanded to do Then Moses and Aaron went and they gathered up all the elders of the people Israel and Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and he did the signs in the sight of the people and the people believed and when they had heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped God. The results were left up to God. I love this. In the burning bush, Moses stands before him and God says, go and speak. And Moses says, I can't speak. And he says, fine, I'll give you Aaron." says, we'll we'll go and tell the people. Well, how will they know? Well, tell them I am sent you. They'll know. Moses over and over again is so scared about how this interaction is gonna go. And finally, when he acts in obedience, look at the way that the Lord had already set this in motion. As he comes in to the wilderness, who's there to meet him? Well, Aaron, right off the bat, God had already sent Aaron. He had prepared Aaron for the task. So Moses shares all of the story with Aaron, which honestly, if you had shared that story with me, my initial response would not have been like, oh, that's a great idea, Moses. Let's go confront the king of Egypt. But Aaron says, oh, that is clearly what God has prepared me for, so let's go do this together. Then they gather all of Israel's people together, the elders, and they present their case. And in the same way that God spoke to Moses and Moses spoke to Aaron, now Aaron is before the elders of Israel and he is pleading God's case before the elders of Israel and they hear it and they say, yes, God heard us and they worshiped the Lord. And this is so important for us to realize is that all of the fears that Moses had in obeying the Lord, they were not unreasonable fears. These are fears that I personally would have experienced. But what we have to realize is that oftentimes in obedience, we cannot assume that we have control over the results. We have to trust what the Lord is doing. We have to trust what the Lord is doing. And this is gonna bring me to my transitional point is this, and it's not on the board, but it's simply this. Obedience in these situations are always going to be a response to the faithfulness of God. Obedience is not the means by which we receive the faithfulness of God. Obedience is a response to the faithfulness of God. It's not the means by which we receive the faithfulness of God. God had made his promises regarding Israel long, long, long before Moses even existed. So much so that when this story begins, when this confrontation begins, it says, and God heard the groanings of Israel, and God remembered what? He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob this whole story that's about to take place, this entire confrontation that's about to go down between Moses, Aaron, and and Pharaoh, all of this stuff is wrapped up in promises that were made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when Moses goes and stands before Pharaoh, not only does he go in the authority of God because God had commissioned him directly, but he stands firmly on the promises of God because he remembered. He remembered what he had told. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's so important for us to realize that our obedience is not it's not the way in which we earn the Lord's favor. Our obedience is a response to understanding the promises and the faithfulness of God. Now, we're about to bridge into the taking of the Lord's supper. And this is what I want to say, we're not Moses. There's not a direct correlation. There are a lot of things that we get to learn about God, and there's a lot of things that we get to learn from Moses' example in obedience. But this is one thing that we know, is that Moses got to serve as a redeemer for a period, but there was a greater redeemer coming. Moses, Moses got to stand on the promises of God And then he got to be a part of establishing a new covenant a new law with his people, the formation of Israel. But here's the thing is that even he was found faulty and we point us further to a need for a greater redeemer and a greater salvation. And where we are right now is we realize that when Jesus came, Jesus came as the greater Moses. Where Moses got to redeem his people from slavery, he was not able to redeem them from sin itself. Jesus came and not only does he ransom us, not only does he redeem us out of slavery, but he frees us from the grips of sin and death themselves. And when we respond in love and obedience to the Father, we do not do that in order to earn his favor. We respond in obedience and love to the Father simply because we firmly believe the promises he's made in Christ.